Good afternoon, everybody. This is Jeff J. Brown, China Rising Radio, Sinoland, and I've got a, a good and old great friend on the show with me today, John Potash. How are you doing? Good, Jeff. It's good to be with you again. We uh, we have been uh, we have known each other now for for a number of years, and I did one show with him back in um, 2019, and another one in 2020 to cover his first two books, and I will give you the links to those interviews. And but first, let me go ahead and get, introduce you to uh, John. For those of you who do not know him, I'm really honored to have him on my show today. I mean, in my opinion, he has done some of the best journalism of the 21st century, if its definition is to expose the truth about the lies of empire. And get a load of all of this, John Potash has been featured on C-SPAN's American History TV, A&E, The Reels Channel, The Real News Network, and RT Television Networks. He has also been featured on hundreds of radio programs in the U.S., England, and New Zealand, including Coast to Coast AM, and uh, he has worked counseling people with mental health issues for over 35 years. So that's his that's his profession. In 2015, he released Drugs as a Weapon Against Us. And in, 20, in 27, he released The FBI War on Tupac Shakur and Black Leaders. And today, oh, I'm sorry, he also, since then, since we last talked to each other, he also wrote and produced the 2022 film Shots, Eugenics to pandemics. I, I I actually would like to buy that. I'll talk to you about that after we get off, off the off the air, John. Our earlier interviews covered his first two books, where we took a broad look at just how I mean. And when you read his books, you will agree with me just how totalitarian and genocidal U.S. society is. If you're a person of color and or poor and or support socialist causes, so today we're going to be talking about his latest expose and third book. The FBI War on Tupac Shakur, which takes a deep dive into the murder of one of the U.S.'s most popular musicians, along with black leaders from the 1960s onwards. I cannot overestimate how important it is for all free thinkers and freedom lovers to read all three of John's books. I bought all three of them. I got the other two in, up in the attic uh, since we're moving. They're not that expensive, but money. if money is an issue, then ask your local library, school, college, university, or place of worship to get it so many others can share its wealth of discovery and truth-telling. Failing that, several friends can pool their money to, to, to buy them. Using it in a book club, using them, all three would make it for fascinating discussions as well. And believe it or not, John has also, you're not a reader, he's got the DVDs, which I bought, although I, I don't know if he has a third one for this book, but I have his first two, vid, his first two DVDs and library, and library stock DVDs too. And I, he, he is really unusual in that he is not afraid to give his uh, email and not afraid to give his Skype address, not even afraid to give his phone number. So if you want to get, at, and I give, I'll, I'm giving you the link uh, in the show today, where to buy all of his books and DVDs. I'll have all of his contact information. John, it's a thrill having you back. Thanks so much for having me on again, Jeff. Well, listen, why Tupac Shakur? You you have exposed the government murders of more than, of more widely known celebrities, such as Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, John Lennon, Bob Marley, and others. Why Tupac? The reason I focused on Tupac Shakur is the fact that he was so popular with a younger generation. And granted, you know, he he would be um, he would be 52 years old right now. So it's not like he's he would still be young, but people, the younger generation still love him. And I wanted to it's one thing, you know, us older generations granted i'm 58 um and uh from my age you know upwards maybe uh, didn't grow up with him didn't you know uh just saw him you know when he was uh you know as, as a younger guy and didn't didn't worship him like the younger generations appear to do but um i think that our generations you know my generation and older uh you know was a little more interested in the black panthers and students for democratic society though many many didn't know about these groups 
But someone like Tupac Shakur, I've had former Black Panthers tell me that their kids wouldn't read about Black Panther history that much until um, I, you know, my book, where they read the whole thing cover to cover and mm -hmm. learned more details about, you know, the the um, history um, be through him because they were so excited to read about him. And so I thought it was a way to appeal to the younger, you know, younger masses to learn to teach them about this alternative history of all these incredible um, mm -hmm. black, you know, leaders, black radical leaders, and. Um, and you know of course some um, uh white leaders too that were working with them well it's I, I do want to point out to people before i get to my next question what the this book is a little bit different than john's first two this is actually almost like a magazine and and what's really cool about it and i don't even know if john realizes this or not but it's got 39 i'll put it's got 39 chapters, including the epilogue and the prologue and the intros and everything. But what's really cool about it is you could literally put this by your bed and open it up to any one of any one of the any one of these chapters independently. And and they really it's like it's like reading a magazine article. So it's so it's not it, it's not um necessarily chronological and so i i mean i think it's incredible and for you keep it by your bed keep it keep it by keep it by your bed and just read a chapter read a chapter a night and you're not going to miss a thing so did you did you do that on purpose john or is that is that how that turned out or did you even know that <laughs> well it, it's it is similar it's a bit similar to my first book in in that um except my first book was try to be a little more chronological in the sense uh, than this book um yeah the way they did it they, they did it a little differently though it was it was so close to to the order of my first book um they just you know did a little more artistically okay uh, and um you know and it, yeah I, I you know they decided to, to use footnotes instead of end notes which is interesting uh, I, I don't you know i i couldn't decide between footnotes and end notes myself they wanted footnotes. They wanted you to be able to see the sources right at the bottom of the page. And I think it works that way. And I'm glad they did that. Mm -hmm. And so, so this is a, a uh, updated version of, you know, this book, of course, is an updated version of this original book mm -hmm. that you remember that you interviewed me about. And, um, and the update, uh, there's some updates within chapters, but most of the update is really at the end of the book uh, with the epilogue. And the epilogue uh, does cover, of course, what's happened, what happened to Afeni Shakur, what happened to... Yeah, yeah, you have like Tupac's mom and stepdad. And, you know, and uh, what happened, Tupac's legacy afterwards uh, in a greater detail and and what ha was happening with the people people investigating Tupac's case, such as, you know, a Detective Russell Poole and uh, what what the government did to him, sadly yeah, enough, yeah, yeah, and yeah. Um, and things I like read that. that. I remember that. It was unbelievable. Yeah. Unbelievable. Well, you note in, in one of your footnotes that you just mentioned, the FBI has over 4,000, listen to this, fans, 4,000 pages in its Tupac dossier. And, John, your Freedom of Information Act, the FOIA request, only got 99 pages released it, it seems like such a staggering amount of information i mean does this include u.s and state u.s state and, and local police too or is it just the fbi yeah so it's it's the whole hierarchy um really now i do get a little bit more into the cia in my drugs as weapons against this book you know about um tupac that, that has a lot on tupac also in terms of the drug angle that you know as one of the reasons they were targeting him, one of the big reasons they were targeting him. Um, but it, yeah, it goes all the way to the whole U.S. intelligence gamut. And the U.S. intelligence gamut, which I analyze in, in the chapter two, goes from the very top, uh, you know, CIA at the top, uh, where the director of the CIA is uh, a director of all the 14-plus intelligence agencies, and one of those, of course, is under, underneath the CIA is the FBI. Mm -hmm. But there's also, of course, uh, naval intelligence, army intelligence, 
um, you know, Air Force Intelligence, there's uh, NSA, National Security Agency, um, et cetera. And so then it goes all the way down to police intelligence and police intelligence, you know, with their boots on the ground doing the dirty work. But um, that's that's the way it works. And some people who were involved with Tupac Shakur's, you know, murder, you know, so of course, some people call it assassination because he was a nationally recognized, you know, nationally recognized activist leader as well as a rapper. Um, he, uh, you know, police, uh, I was going to say one of the people involved was both part of the FBI and part of New York police intelligence at the same time. And that was found, uh, that, you know, I, I showed the ev you know, evidence of that. They uh, have, I, I present his name, Detective Oldham. And, um, yeah, and that was found out about from mother investigations. Um, and so, you know, uh, I'm just, I feel like I'm the first person to, to put out, you know, his name as officially both FBI and New York police involved in uh, Biggie Smalls murder as collateral damage to throw the scent off of U.S. intelligence mm -hmm. you know, for his, you know, revolutionary activism. How does Tupac's dossier size compare to other FOI requests that you asked for? And, and how many FOI requests have you made? So I have not made any other FOI okay. requests. Okay. When, I, when I made a request for Tupac's file, um, I was, I was you know, stymied. I mean, it took years just to get what I got, the 99 pages. Mm -hmm. And then uh, a few years after they, gave, they sent me the 99 pages, uh, of course, first they asked for me, you know, I asked for the, uh, you know, 3000, uh, you know, and 900 pages that they denied me. Um, and they said that would, you know, that would, I talked to a lawyer about how I could keep filing, uh, I mean, you know, how I could appeal their, their holding back of the rest of the file. And, and he was going to charge me, you know, massive amount of money, somewhere between three and $10,000. I can't remember exactly. He basically explained how each stage would go and how much it would cost, and uh, I just didn't have that kind of money to do yeah, that. Yeah. Um, and so I, I was very young when I first started this investigation. Um, yeah, I believe I was uh, in my early you know, mid to late twenties when I started this investigation. I'm 58 now, but um, and I just didn't have that kind of money at the time. I was, you know, working part time as a, you know counselor as a psychotherapist but part-time as a writer and um so anyway i um you know i i ended up though you know they a few years after they gave me the 99 pages they they released them on their website but of course those 99 pages were heavily redacted um though i did find you know some tidbits that helped in those 99 pages um and it, it influenced the release of Biggie Smalls' file, which had a lot more help um, for what was going on. Because they released several hundred pages of Biggie Smalls' file. And um, so basically, in a nutshell, I'll tell people that listening that Tupac um, only pretended, like according to his business manager and political mentor, who was a former Black Panther named Watani Tayahimba, who was a, a co-founding security director for the New African People's Organization, uh, Watani Tayimba in a long interview told me uh, that Tupac was, uh, you know, he, I basically guessed it and he confirmed it. He was only pretending to be a gangster in order to appeal to gangs and politicize them. And that was part of his, what he called his thug life movement that he devised with uh, Matula Shakur. Now, I know you're going to ask me, of course, about Malcolm X. Now, this, this kind of comes out of what Malcolm X recognized was the fact that um, some of the most powerful forces in society are the, are the, the gangs, the uh, hustlers, and, uh, you know, the young, wild, you know, street folk who, who, you know, are kind of urban dynamite, I think he, he called them. And, um, and he recognized that and how, it, and he could appeal to them and transform them, transform them because he could speak you know, in pre professorial type language, as well as, you know, street, street talk. He, he just talked to, to whoever he was talking to in, in their, their language, their slang, because he, he had lived different lives and he, he was such an intellectual, but he was also, he started on the street, um, Malcolm X in terms of being a hustler when he was younger. 
And so Tupac was similar. And Tupac was a great actor. You know, he's starred in some six Hollywood films. And um, and so he took on that that persona um, just to do that, to be able to talk to the gangs, get them to call peace truces and then turn on to activism. And he got the peace truces going uh, along with his Black Panther extended family and different activist celebrities like Harry Belfonte and others who who helped work with the Bloods and Crips. For, you know, they all worked with the Bloods and Crips in California, but Tupac was the most instrumental because they they love Tupac as you know for being a great rapper and actor, and uh, so he got them shaking hands at peace truce picnics, the heads of Bloods and Crips gangs in California, and that was gang peace truces spread throughout the country, where there's Bloods and Crips gangs uh, throughout the country, but um, it also spread to the Latino community, inspired and helped uh, the former you know young lords like uh, one I interviewed named uh, Vincent Panama Alba. Uh, to help get the uh, head of the Young Lords, uh, King Tone, who I, you know, his name's Antonio King Tone Fernandez, who I um, also interviewed when I was in New York, uh, to call peace, to, you know, to get his, to transform his 3,000 member gang in New York into an activist organization and to stop drug dealing. And, and you know, some uh, professors in New York also wrote a book about this transformation that was um, published by Club Media University Press. But um, that was an amazing transformation. And then that transformation, was, you know, what, what Tupac was engendering throughout the country, you know, along with his, these other activists, was um, basically cost, costing the CIA drug traffickers billions of dollars. But um, it was also costing the money launderers 20 mm -hmm. times that because of the amount that it raises stock prices on the stock market is, is when you look into the future to see stock values, you, you um, rate a stock 20 times the amount of cash inflow in that year, predicting that that stock will make that same amount of cash inflow for 20 years down the road. And uh, so it made the money launderers like 20, you know, According to Catherine Austin Fitz, a, a Wall Street insider, um, and when studying the way the drug trade and the money laundering affects the stock market, you know, up to 20 times that the cash flow amount. So by taking all those street dealers off of the streets in terms of their drug dealing, he was really costing um, these different institutions, you know, tens, if not hundreds of billions of dollars. And it cost him his, and it cost him his life. And of course, it cost him his life. Yes, I mean, you, uh, you, in fact, you mentioned. Um, I think it was. I don't remember which book. I don't think. I don't think it was in this book. But you mentioned in one of your first two books that the Chicago small business people were were moaning and complaining uh, that uh, about what Tupac was doing, getting the gangs to to cooperate together because they didn't have any money to launder and they couldn't. They couldn't make a profit without without money laundering. It just goes to show you how screwed up the economy is. Yeah, it's just under unbelievable. One of the things, very early in your book, you wrote you wrote a quote that Tupac's case is a window into U.S. intelligence, and as you pointed out, defense, CIA, FBI, and police targeting of left black leftist black leaders from. 1965 to 2005 and that really jumped out at me why not why not before 1965 and have they stopped after 2005 yeah and the reason i said that is uh, you know uh, i mean the reason that's the case is because my first book my first version of the fbi war on tupac shakur um, was titled the fbi war on tupac shakur and black leaders and with that i started all the way back to marcus garvey and the reason I started back to Marcus Garvey is because um, Saladin Abba Shakur was part of Marcus Garvey's group in the earlier 1900s. And uh, so I say, really, it's the Shakur family is an incredible window into this mm -hmm. okay. revolutionary activism. And Tupac was, of course, part of the revolutionary Shakur family. And so Saladin Abba Shakur was the patriarch of that family. Him and his wife adopted, you know, a number of kids and turned them on to activism. And some of those kids were um, 
well, they actually had the biological kids of Lumumba and uh, Shakur and Zaid Shakur. Um, and they also had the adopted uh, son of Matulu Shakur and they adopted other kids too. But the, those three became black activist leaders. And, but Saeed and Alba Shakur, as I say, was a member of Marcus Garvey's United Negro Improvement Association, which was a million strong in the Northeast of America alone. Um, Malcolm's wow. father was part of Marcus Garvey's group out in, I believe it was, you know, in the Midwest. Um, and he was, you know, an act, an activist with that group, Malcolm X's dad. Uh, Malcolm X was inspired by, you know, the group, of course, uh, um, by Marcus Garvey. And um, so, yeah, my first version of the Tupac book, I go further back, my publishers, you know, who put it out in 2021 in a new form um, and, you know, changed the title slightly. And, you know, uh, they just wanted to make it a, a different, you know, more abbreviated book. They didn't want to go uh, okay. such a deeper history. And um, and so it, it stops. It, they, they also didn't want to go too far into the future. You know, um, now my first book version of the book came out in 2007. So, of course, it, you know, it kind of ended its research in about 2005 because it did take about two years for me to get it out there in 2007. Uh, but in, um, you know, in the new version, it goes into beyond 2005 in the sense of, of giving updates in the epilogue. Of, yeah. Yeah. Towards the end of the book, you had, you had a lot of stuff. I, I read that. It was really good. Yeah. yeah. You had but a great, again, again I, just, I do want to just repeat, I want to answer the question a little more deeper though, in the sense that Jeff, that. So I, I, with Saladin Alba Shakur, um, he he was a close confidant. He became a close confidant of Malcolm X's. He was part of his inner circle in New York City, and you know, with the United, uh, with the um, uh, ONA, the organi organization. I'm sorry, it's OAO. I forget the exact initials of it, but it was the Organization of African American Unity, OAAU. Okay, and it was modeled after the uh, the Organization of African Unity in Af with that the African leaders had formed, you know, and there Malcolm X is the only American leader they allowed at their meetings of you know the Organization of African Unity. So they were incredibly impressed with Malcolm X. I mean, I'm sure they were impressed with Martin Luther King too, but Malcolm X was just just a bit more in line and and talked much more about the international picture of you know african of african-americans oppression and um so and he you know of course malcolm x visited all you know, many african countries and these independence leaders talked to these independence leaders directly so um society and Abishkor was part of uh, malcolm x's inner circle and when the black panthers went so you know i get into malcolm x's assassination at the hands of u.s intelligence and how it paralleled uh them infiltrating uh, Malcolm X's inner circle with this uh, New York police intelligence officer named uh, Eugene Roberts. Yeah. He, he became head of, uh, of Malcolm X's security, sadly enough, and was the first to arrive at his body when he died. And um, I believe it was to at least confirm the U.S. intelligence success in, in murdering, you know, assassinating Malcolm X. Um, and the same sense, um, the first person to arrive at Martha King's body uh Merrill McCullough was a military intelligence agent, undercover agent. Mm -hmm. And um, and he was there to confirm, according to William Pepper, the top biographer and, and a, a good friend of Mal of Martin Luther King's. Um he he confirmed that Merrill McCullough was a yeah, military intelligence first to arrive as body and confirm the death and had signals to send to the backup snipers, uh backup, you know, US intelligence snipers. Um, that the death was, you know, happened. Now, you know, in uh, he, he wrote several books about uh, Martha King's assassination, and in the third book, he he, he changed the slate, the changed it a bit how it all occurred at the very end of you know in, of Martha King's passing, but it's basically the same idea that U.S. intelligence orchestrated, of course, you know, uh, Martha King's assassination. Mm -hmm. Sadly enough. And so now after there's, you know, after Malcolm X's assassination, the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense was inspired, of course, by Malcolm X and formed. 
And, um, and so Huey Newton and Bobby Seal started in Oakland, California. It spread throughout the country and they recognized that the Shakurs were the leading activists in New York City. And so they, so, um, they had Saladin Abba Shakur's, I mean, Saladin Shakur's uh, sons, um, you know, they asked them, Lumumba Shakur, to be head of the Harlem Black Panthers. They asked um, Zaid Shakur, Zaid or Zaid uh, Shakur, to be head, one of the heads of the Bronx Black Panthers. And they asked one of Lumumba's close friends, um, um, I'm just forgetting, um, Saku Odinga, to be head of, also a co-head of the Bronx Black Panthers. And um, and so that's how, you know, that's, again, a window, how the Shakurs are a window into so much incredible black act activism. And so Eugene Roberts followed, you know, then was used to infiltrate the Black Panthers at that time. OK, in New York City, Black Panthers. Now, people didn't know that Eugene Roberts, you know, even though he was head of Malcolm X's security, they didn't know that he was part of the assassination. And was a police New York police intelligence agent. That only came out when Eugene Roberts tried to set up and frame the Black Panther Twenty One, uh, the Twenty One leaders of the you know, New York Black Panthers. And so he testified in court, um, Eugene Roberts, and, and identified himself as a police intelligence agent then. Um, but they, you know, court because of Tupac's mother, Fannie Shakur's brilliance. As a, I believe she was about 21 or 22 years old at the time, she helped, she defended herself in court along with the lawyers that were hired by other Black Panthers on trial. And a lot of the jury credited her as the reason they, mm -hmm. they found Black Panther 21 not guilty of all charges. And, um, and so that is some of the incredible history, you know, with the Shakur's related to these uh, black leaders, but of course, then Tupac rises up and is, is elected the youngest ever chairman of the New African Panthers, which was active in eight to ten cities and was trying to replicate the Black Panthers. And so, in the late 1980s, here he is, you know, head of a, a national black mm. activist group. And the counterintelligence, the FBI's counterintelligence program, uh, was found out about by activists, um, you know. Uh, White activists actually raided a, a FBI office in Media, Pennsylvania, and found all the files and exposed all the FBI files to alternative media and mainstream media and politicians. And uh, it only came out so much, but the books were written based on those files, like the COINTELPRO papers, the counterintelligence program papers, and uh, books like that, that, which were great, you know, research um, opportunities for people like myself. But um, Basically, when they were exposed, they closed it down. Okay, they closed down the FBI's counterintelligence program officially, but yeah. unofficially, the U.S. intelligence agents admitted. And I quote some of the U.S. You know, U.S. intelligence agents that wrote memoirs about this, like M. Wesley Swearing, and he says they actually continued at least until the mid 1990s, when you know, to, at the time Tupac was uh, targeted for murder and finally, you know, actually, you know, assassinated in 1996. Um, but they targeted Tupac for murder, um, probably you know, between uh, you know five and you know seven times before they actually killed him. Um, and so, obviously, if, if, if COINTELPRO was just going, still going with different names, as you know, former COINTELPRO agent swearing and says, um, they would of course target Tupac Shakur for because he was already a you know a, an activist leader a national activist leader before he became a rapper but when he, when he just added wealth and fame and influence mm -hmm. to that uh, national activist leadership that was incredibly dangerous for US intelligence uh, they knew his potential at that point that for um, you know really changing hearts and minds in the way they they you know, didn't want them changed so well, I interviewed Douglas Valentine and, you know, he has, he wrote the book, you know, the CIA as organized crime. And, uh, you know, he said that, you know, and he was actually in the CIA mm -hmm. and he, um, you know, he said in the interview that, uh, well, when the was, CIA was gets Valentine caught by. Was Valentine in the CIA? I didn't. I didn't well, or, well I maybe, well, maybe he was an else. I can't remember. I know he point. researched them very well, but maybe he did do some government contract work that was I related. Can't, to yeah, that. I can't. I'll be honest. 
he I know he got on the Maybe inside. He got on he got on the inside and had all kinds of access to the CIA. I remember that. Yeah. And he just said that whenever they get caught doing something by the the Senate or the Congress or whatever or the or the newspapers, they just say, "Okay, we won't do that again." And then they just take the program, move it from, you know, room 101 to room 102 and change the name and keep going. They don't stop. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. You know, and I'm sure the yeah. same thing is true about all the all all that's all all that you've written about too, as far as no suppress, suppressing suppressing uh, black liberation movements, uh, etc. So uh, yeah. you have a you have a great quote by Tupac, and that's another nice thing about this book is he, John, actually not every chapter, but John and and a number of the chapters. He has quotes at the beginning of, of the chapters, and some of them are by Tupac, some are by, some are by Malcolm X, some are by other people. But that uh, it really is kind of a nice way to start out, you know, many of the chapters. But Tupac had, had one quote that I just loved. No Malcolm X in my history text. Why is that? And, and of course, that was at the, ch the chapter where you talked about Malcolm X. He's one of my all-time, you know, heroes in terms of, brilliance and just yeah. just charisma and, and just clarity and everything else so what are three adjectives that describe him best for you and why well the first ones that came to me i guess are uh brilliant revolutionary and evolutionary mm -hmm. and so when, when i first you know when i was in college and and uh, i was just one of the christmas break uh, up in school, stuck in school because we were, I was on the wrestling team and we had just um, wrestled actually in Canada in the Montreal Open and came back early to school and I was just, uh, uh, had didn't have classes. So I um, found a uh, copy of uh, a biography of Malcolm X, I remember, and I was reading that. And I just was struck, really struck by, um, he, you know how he was so how he evolved so much you know how he at one point um you know uh nation of islam leader uh had convinced them to you know separate themselves from whites and so he he acted like you know you know he talked about white blue-eyed devils and uh <laughs> and then he um you know he evolved he went to mecca and he he sat by other muslims who were who were uh white and blue-eyed and they considered each other brothers, you know, in Mecca. Um, and uh, he changed his philosophy on that. And he says, mm -hmm. no, you know, whites can be part of our revolution too, um, as long as they work in solidarity with us. You know, of course, they've got to work, you know, work, you know, either, you know, beside us in an equal way, they can't work above us. And he didn't want that. But they want. But if they work side by side in an equal way, you know, they can be part of, of the revolution. And when I say revolution, I don't mean, um, you know, just you know, killing everyone and uh, you know, taking over. I mean, just you know, changing society for the better for the ninety nine percent. And that's what that's why I think all the people I um, you know discuss in in my book believe it's about changing society for the better for the great majority over the oligarchs of the wealthiest uh oligarchs who um are happen to be incredibly racist you know prejudiced mm -hmm. so um and so he was uh he evolved that way throughout his life and it was just so inspiring that way and so mm -hmm. inspiring uh it's just so brilliant the way he dissected the propaganda so well yeah, yeah. And explained it so well to everybody he was a man of the people yeah well, you also did a nice cha a chapter about Martin Martin Luther King to kind of get us prepared for Tupac and uh, and uh, you, you, William Pepper. I read I read his last book, the big, huge, thick one. About, it must be I don't know, seven hundred pages. Um, it's I, I've got it again up in my in storage in the attic since we're moving. Uh, but uh, where he really, you know, he really lays it all out about how it was blatantly. Uh, blatantly a, a, a government inside job and uh, with the grand jury that convicted uh, the government that he actually held a grand jury and and uh, really amazing amazing book but and now he's trying to he's trying to do the same thing for Sirhan Sirhan for uh, 
RFK. I don't know if if he's going to get very far with that or not. But that's obviously another government, another government inside job. But anyway, Martin Luther King, give us give us three quick adjectives and and tell us what you think about what you think about the man. Yeah, I mean, again, I would say just you know, brilliant, uh, revolutionary in a in a different way, in a softer way, obviously than Malcolm X. Malcolm X um, throughout his his tenure, you know, talked about armed self-defense and Martin Luther King um, seemed to be coming to that point, the very end of his life, of believing that more. But uh, earlier in his life, you know, he was, he was adopting the Gandhi method of, mm-hmm. of uh, revolution, um, you know, but uh, actually he did have, um, I forget the name of the group, um, but he did have armed people, deacons of defense, who were armed in defending him, even though he didn't talk about it. You know, the, you know they were there, uh, making trying to protect Martha King's life, but he didn't believe in um, immediate uh, the kind of self defense that Malcolm X did. Uh, you know, like talking about it openly and and all that. Um, so Martha King, you know, again, I'd say is brilliant, revolutionary, and inspiring. And of course, Malcolm X was inspiring too. But uh, something about Martha King's uh, speeches uh, just was so incredibly inspiring. You know, the way mm-hmm. he would um, just make these incredible, brilliant speeches and talks off the top of his head, you know, similar to Malcolm X, but um, in a way that was, you know, that preacher's cadence and that the beauty of his, his uh, talks and language. Um, he was really something. And, um, and he was him and Malcolm X were coming together in um, in the way in their tactics, like more and more towards the end of both their lives. Even though Malcolm X died, you know, um, earlier in '65, and Martin Luther King in '68, because um, Martin Luther King was leading a Poor People's March to Washington mm-hmm. to end the war, and um, and they really were worried about that because they had all you know America, America had. Swing troops in Vietnam, they actually didn't know if they could defend the Capitol with uh, all those people, poor people, you know, marching to the Capitol and, and you know, forming an encampment around the Capitol. Um, not that Martha King was saying we got to take over the Capitol, but um, they just, you know, I feel like their racist beliefs, mm-hmm. you know, had them worried about what would, what would transpire. <laughs> you know? yeah. so, That's the um, right word, racist. Go ahead. Yeah. And so, uh, that's so he was just um you know martha king was just such an amazing um you know brilliant speaker and inspiring figure uh inspired so many and and even you know inspired i mean they uh when they asked rioters they actually surveyed and polled rioters like who do you respect um you know uh, of course they were they used to in the earlier 60s it was malcolm x and martha king but um, after Malcolm X died, um, people thought that they would say, um, you know, name all these Black Panther radicals that they respect or, you know, other you know, Black radicals like Stokely Carmichael and stuff. And they did respect, of course, Atrap Brown, Stokely Carmichael and all who I talk, talk about in my books. But they um, always said Martin Luther King, too. And, the, and it doesn't matter how radical these rioters were. They said they were inspired by Martin Luther King, you know, and... Um, and that made him, uh, you know, even more dangerous too. And and so, yeah. You show time and time again how U.S. intelligence does a diabolical job of getting operatives and drug dealers close to its targets to report on them, manipulate their behavior, their decisions, and get them hooked on drugs. And the the only one that I can think of that you wrote about was Harry Belafonte who fired his intelligence linked manager, but all the others didn't seem to, 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 to pull it off. Like, like he did. Why do you think so many celebrities can't see what's going on? You know, that, that, that they are being infiltrated and manipulated. Why do you think that's the case? Well, I, I, I think actually that um, it's not that they can't, uh that they don't know what's going on i think they suspect but they just sometimes you know when for example uh jimmy hendrix you know i talk about um in my drugs and weapons against this book and i forget if i still have him i believe 
have him in my the other new version of the Tupac book, but because um, they cut out a lot of the musicians I originally talked about in uh, my my uh, book when you know the new version of the Tupac book, but um, my Drugs and Weapons Against this book, of course, I talk about. I have a chapter on Jimi Hendrix, and because he had been radicalized by Martha King's assassination, he started de dedicating his albums. He dedicated his last album to the Black Panthers. He started talking about the Black Panthers in interviews. And um, and so Hendrix had a manager that admittedly was former uh, MI6, British you know, CIA. And because Hendrix guys start in England, not in America, where they were too racist to like understand his brilliance, Hendrix's brilliance, Jimi Hendrix's brilliance. And so Hendrix, um, he kept trying to fire his manager, okay, um, and Mike Jeffrey. And he couldn't, he couldn't get rid of him, you know, because of the, he you know, kept being told the contract says you, you can't fire me. Um, you know, uh, Jeffrey had already controlled so much of his money. Uh, Jeffrey had some, uh, you know, the best evidence is that Jeffrey actually had some mafia kidnap Jimi Hendrix to, to uh, threaten him, you know, and so to, you know, threaten him while he was trying to fire Jeffrey and uh, pretended to get, you know, bigger mafia to save him from the smaller mafia that had kidnapped him. <laughs> several days. And so these are some of the tactics that were used. And, and Tupac, um, so Hendrix finally did fire his manager, Mike Jeffrey, and within 48 hours, Hendrix was dead. And so, you know, that's um, obvious connection there. And so, you know, and of course, Mike Jeffrey was caught, um, two people quoted Jeffrey as saying that he had Hendrix killed. And so how do you just have someone killed within 48 hours? You know, the only people that can do that is pe people that are connected to either obviously mafia or U.S. or U.S. or British intelligence. And um, and if it's mafia, why why didn't, you know, police officers, you know, show the evidence that it was a mafia killing? Mm -hmm. um, obviously, it was it was the establishment. It was police. It was U.S. or British intelligence that were involved in Hendrix's murder. And so, um, yeah, Belafonte was the most clearest, like figuring out and firing and being able to fire his CIA undercover agent that got involved in his life because Harry Belafonte was was massively supporting Martha King and Martha King's, you know, um, movement um, with his, you know, celebrity and money and, and all. But um, yeah, the others, I think, were also like, like with Tupac Shakur, um, he didn't realize how that Haitian Jacques Agnant, uh, who befriended Tupac, he didn't realize that Agnant, you know, um, was an undercover agent at first until um, his lawyer found a long rap sheet on Agnant, um, Jacques Agnant, um, that was up and down the East Coast, you know, of major charges all dismissed, which his lawyer said was a sure sign of a government intelligence agent. And so then Tupac, you know, said he's not going to have any part of, of this guy ever, you know, ever again. And he rapped, he put him in a song saying, you know, Haitian Jack uh, set me up, wet me up, meaning set me up on the, the um, sexual assault charge and wet mm -hmm. me up and got me shot at the um, recording studio. So, um, so, you know, it's, it's just more complicated with these other guys that got, um, enmeshed you know these undercover agents got enmeshed with them and they did try to distance themselves from they did try to get away from them. it just it just wasn't always so easy and you know it wasn't always easy to know how how many undercover intelligence agents there are uh throughout the communities throughout the music communities and the hollywood communities and all so two of the most fascinating um things that you talk about uh, in, in, in your book are, are threat timing tactics. This is what the, and this is what the U S government does is threat timing tactics and psychological profiling. Uh, tell us, tell us about how they, they use these to, uh, to reach their goals. Yeah, there, there's a lot of this going on. And uh, I point out some of them in my, you know, FBI warrant to Fox core book. So, um, there, Tupac, when Tupac was um, head of the New African Panthers, 
he said he had he had uh, had meetings with the former you know minister of defense for the you know national black panther party and of course that minister of defense was Huey newton so he was meeting regularly with huey newton and and um strategizing on how to get these two generations of of uh of that you know panthers together you know uh so huey newton tried to get um the east coast and west coast you know, talking again of, of Black Panthers talking again and, and active again while strategizing with Tupac on his group, the eight, eight to ten uh, chapters of, of New African Panthers nationally. And so they were both also working to try to get Tupac's godfather, Geronimo Pratt, former head of the Los Angeles Black Panthers, out of jail when he was falsely imprisoned for a murder. And um, now Geronimo Pratt did eventually win, you know, a settlement with the government on that false imprisonment for you know decades but that was after tupac died um it was murdered assassinated but um so here was um you know this situation where they're working together huey newton is is assassinated um and in on the third year uh anniversary of huey newton's assassination uh there is a setup and near uh, murder of Tupac at the uh, Marin Fest, like the 50th anniversary of this um, Marin County Music Festival, where Tupac's an invited guest, honored, invited, honored, you know, honorable, honorable guest at that festival. And strangers in front of police security, strangers uh, come up to Tupac, hit him for no reason, and then shoot at him. And Tupac only saves himself from being you know, and then the, the it's a really sophisticated attack because the attack influenced like uh, people around them to join in attacking Tupac. It's hard to explain how that, that works that, to create a mob mentality against someone. Um, but Tupac only saved himself by tr crawling under a police car to uh, to not get beaten to death with bricks and all or stones that the uh, attackers had, you know, on them after they failed to kill him with their shooting. Um, and so the fact that that happened on the anniversary of, of uh, Huey Newton's you know, assassination, I argue is no coincidence. And this happened um, several more times with these anniversary tactics in Tupac's life. It also happened with the murder, the assassination of the head of um, the Congo. Um, Patrice you know, Lumumba. Uh, yeah, with Lumumba, um, you know, it's, uh, you know, it just... Patrice Lumumba died and 40 years later, his um, comrade, his, his fellow revolutionary comrade, was assassinated when he became head, head of the Congo after Patrice Lumumba's assassination. And, uh, you know, and so uh, Martin Luther King was assassinated in the, in the exact year anniversary of being a first coming out, of being the first nationally or internationally, you know, recognized black leader to come out against the, uh, you know, Vietnam War. I'm sorry, I can't see anymore. Can you still hear me? Okay, Jeff, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah we dropped. We it got. A, we had a drop there on the signal. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, his speech was a year later. He was assassinated yeah, so, exactly a year after his anti-Vietnam War speech. Right, and William Pepper says, you know, argues that that's probably no coincidence that it was exact year anniversary of his anti-Vietnam War speech that he's that Martha King's assassinated. Is it sends a uh, subconscious message, either a conscious or subconscious message, to those who might do the same thing. You know that if you do this kind of thing, this is what happens to you. And um, being a psychotherapist, you know, I, I understand the the power of these subconscious messages. That even if people don't consciously uh, understand, oh, what's going on here? This is you know dangerous. If I do this, I might get you know murdered. I mean, some people might consciously say that, but a lot of people are actually influenced, you know, scared to keep going subconsciously, knowing something's going on here. I'm not sure what, but, you know, uh, you know, it's the subconscious message to slow mm -hmm. down their turn to activism and, and subconsciously also, you know, turn get other people that were thinking about going into this kind of activism to, to not, you know. And so U.S. intelligence is very sophisticated, obviously, that way with think tanks figuring out these kinds of strategies. And I can give more examples, but, you know, these are just some of the major examples. Well, one 
one hopeful part of your book that I really um, that get, made me, you know, feel kind of positive, and that was you talked post post Tupac. You know, it's 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 almost it's almost like a, a fault line in, in in history. But I did not know about the rap mogul Russell Simmons, who created the Hip Hop Summit Action Network, the H S A N. With Sean Puffy Combs later joining in, and it adopted a 15-point goal statement similar to the Black Panther Socialist 10-point program. And since then, you write that both Simmons and and Combs have been smeared with lawsuits to weaken them. But I'd like to know, given their hundreds of millions of dollars in in personal wealth, how has HSAN fared in, in helping the people? Well, sadly enough, you know, a lot of rappers uh, were inspired by Tupac, you know, before and after his death and uh, did form the Hip Hop Summit Action Network. They were joined by academics such as uh, Columbia University professor who wrote the uh, book on Malcolm X and and other democratic socialist, um, you know, activist professors were involved and um, on the board of the Hip Hop Summit Action Network, you know, all kinds of top rappers, um, such as, you know, Eminem and, um, you know, as you say, Sean P. Diddy Combs, um, and, uh, forgetting some of the names now, but just many of them were involved in this group and they were calling for, you know, a, um, peace in, in the rap community because the, obviously the media were trying to portray them as murderous, like they had an East Coast, West Coast rivalry, and that's the reason these rappers were murdered, which is just some weird, you know, abstract, irrational idea of, of you know, the same, same strategy they used against the East Coast and West Coast Black Panthers, sending fake letters between them and, you know, mm-hmm. using undercover traders to cause this rivalry stuff. But um, so it was inspiring to see that, but they did, had, there was a shooting against you know, Sean P. Diddy Combs. There was, uh, you know, harassment arrest of uh, Russell Simmons' wife. There was just all kinds of tactics used against these these you know uh, rappers for trying to turn into activists that that probably pushed them away from you know being scared to keep going with it. And um, you know they, they did all kinds of things in that regard, and uh, and I show all these attacks in one chapter of of the rappers that that did this. They um, smeared Eminem. They you know they uh, brought him up on different things, and just and so you know I think some of these uh, rappers laid more low because they were scared. Um, mm-hmm. They weren't as inspired. They weren't ready to risk their lives like Tupac was, because he Tupac grew up in that you know revolutionary Black Panther family, so he was ready to risk his life. He said, "You know, I don't I even expect to live to 25 years old, but I'll be happy if I do." Um, um, and so this is, you know, this is the life of a, a revolutionary. They, you know, they they know they're risking their life, and, and this is what happens. But um, you know, we all hopefully it's so inspiring that they that they did do what they did um, with you know the Hip Hop Summit Action Network, and I think they probably do still are doing things in a more low key way in terms of activism. At least I mm-hmm. hope they are, and I hope more um, rappers will be inspired to follow that path too. Yeah, you had also post Tupac, you had a, a chapter on. Uh, how they went after Snoop Dogg and uh, Dr. Dre too. So it's just right. not, it's just endless. I mean, right. And to think of the billions of dollars of, of taxpayers' money that are being spent to destroy these people is, yeah, is something yeah, that all Americans should think about. Yeah, Snoop Dogg was one of the first to meet with, uh, you know, Sean P. Diddy Combs um about the hip-hop summit action network and about just peace between you know uh what were supposed rivalries of death row and and um you know p diddy's um bad boy record label and so you know it was the undercover agent um which was you know in death row records which is filled with undercover police intelligence agents according to police detective russell Poole. Um, and, you know, and so that's basically, he was just defying death row, death row 
threatened his life. Death Row Records, you know, was Tupac's label, threatened his life in the same way they helped set up Tupac's murder. And um, and Snoop Dogg, you know, um, but just wasn't going to play that game. And and he actually said that he believes that that Suge Knight was involved in murdering Tupac. But um, and I argue, yes, de definitely that Suge Knight was involved, but he was low man on the totem pole. And his, his head of security, Reggie Wright Jr., was higher man on the totem pole. And his lawyer, um, of course, uh, was the real head of Death Row Records and was mm -hmm. even higher on the totem pole. But I think that U.S. intelligence, of course, was was head of that, of what happened to the, you know, of course, assassination of Tupac. Well, I'd like to read uh, a passage from uh, John's book uh, to just let uh, Americans know what their government is doing. And, um, and, 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 and it says, in a memorandum revealed by a Senate Intelligence Committee in 1976, U.S. intelligence detailed particular tactics to use against political musicians. The excerpt from that memo on 1960s anti-war musicians bears repeating. It directed agents to show them as scurrilous and depraved, call attention to their habits and living conditions, explore every possible embarrassment, send in women and sex to break up marriages, have members arrested on marijuana charges, investigate personal conflicts or animosities between them, send articles to the newspapers showing their depravity, use narcotics and free sex and traps and trap and trap use, use misinformation to confuse and disrupt, get records of their bank accounts, obtain specimens of their handwriting, provoke target groups into rivalries that may result in death. Well, all that's all that came true, didn't it, John? Yeah, sadly enough. Yeah, unfortunately, unfortunately, it's, it, 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 it worked and, and has worked. And um, and uh, anyway, your books are just just incredible. They, they actually changed my attitude about 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 American governance. I, I had no idea, you know, you know, John, John Lennon and and uh, Janis Joplin and Brian, Brian uh, Jones and, and the. Kurt uh, Cohen, I mean, yeah. just, it's just unbelievable, you know, that, that our government is so paranoid and so insecure that they have to go out and kill a bunch of um, uh, people who, uh, uh, you know, uh, want the world to be a better place, and including Bob Marley movie. I'll just say, Jeff, I just wanted to add that people seeing the Bob Marley movie are, are hearing about my Drugs as Weapons Against This Book, the C, you know, about the CIA war musicians and activists. And in the chapter on Bob Marley, it gives all the details of how U.S. intelligence helped orchestrate uh, Bob Marley's first shooting. And then they, um, you know, uh, in, in infiltrated his encampment to uh, give him the cancer. That cancer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And his big toe in a pair of shoes that he was given yeah. by... A CIA director's son was yeah, it? Yeah, William Colby, the CIA director's yeah, yeah. son, Carl yeah. Colby is the one yeah, that Carl did Carl Colby, yeah, did it. Yeah, put 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 uh, cancer, a cancer, a, can a highly cancerous uh, chemical on a nail in his uh, boot that he was boots that he was given, and uh, and six months later is. Toe fell off, and he was eaten eaten alive with cancer. So, um, hold please, since I since my books are. And hold up your drug. Hold up your two books again, John. Before we leave. Thanks a lot. Um, yeah, they're the and the, yeah, drugs. Drugs as weapons against us. Yeah, that 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 was a great show we did. Thank that you. was that was a good one. Well, before leaving, what other journalist writer projects are you working on? You're obviously a very busy man with your psych, psych psychiatrist or psychologist uh, uh, practice. Uh, yeah. And you've got a home life. Well, what what are what are your current projects? So um, I'm coming out with some articles uh, in Covert Action magazine. Uh, one's about uh, Bob. Uh, is it the uh, Bob Marley article? And um, based on my chapter in in uh, Drugs Weapons Against Us, but uh, you know I'm not sure when that's going to come out. That's delayed because our first um, article is coming out uh, sometime in the next week. They told me which is an interview of a, a leader of a new 
the Revolutionary Black Panther Party group. That they was called the Revolutionary Black Panther Party. Um, and this interview um, talk, talks to this leader who who's, was poisoned and uh, for trying to get uh, peace truces between different gangs in the Midwest um, in, in line with what Tupac was doing. And he was poisoned. His uh, comrade of his and his group was poisoned for doing the same thing. And they were, they were working with uh, really popular local rappers in Chicago and other cities to do this. And, um, and some of these rappers were, were murdered um, by infiltrators in gangs in those areas. And, um, and the way they use something called drill music to help push these kind of, this kind of violence in those communities. Um, and so that's, I hope that comes out soon. I'm also doing a, a sequel. It's actually a comic sequel, but it's a sequel to uh, my Drugs as Weapons Against This film. Um, and so that's coming out soon. Hopefully within the next, let's say, six months, hopefully. Um, and yeah, this is some of the projects I'm working with. Well, listen, folks, this is, I just, I read this. I've read all three of uh, John's books. Um, I highly recommend not, not, you know, well, actually, John put me on. I, I had never listened to Tupac in my life, and he put me on to Tupac and, and uh, well, Fred Hampton Jr. and uh, Common. He, he recommended Common to listen to. But my favorite, my favorite rap group by by far is Dead Prez. I mean, they, those guys are just amazing, and you you put them you put them on to me. I love listening to those guys with their revolutionary gangster rap. It's really, really, really good. Well, anyway, thank you so much, John. I'll get this up. I will uh, send you all the information, and hopefully you can share it in your uh, social media. Love talking to you, and be safe, so happy, much. and healthy, okay? You do the same, Jeff. It's good talking to you. Take care now. Bye-bye.